Hello, I'm Peter Tofano, the Dean of Said Business School at the University of Oxford. Welcome back to this first episode in a new series of Leadership in Extraordinary Times. This year, we're celebrating 25 years since the school was founded. We've evolved to become one of the elite business schools of the world and aspire to be a model of purposeful leadership. In this podcast, you can join our global community of academics, leaders, and thinkers as they debate the challenges reshaping business and society since the COVID-19 outbreak. Coming up in the series, we'll be discussing the increasing role of AI in marketing, the role that anthropology plays in business, the leadership style required to run a winning F1 team, and much more. Episode 1, The Good, the Bad, and the Ugly. Private Equity in COVID-19. We're kicking off this new series of Leadership in Extraordinary Times by looking at the sometimes controversial world of private equity. In many ways, private equity has provided life-saving help to companies during the pandemic. But many PE-controlled firms were particularly hard hit during the crisis due to the high leverage that's put on them by private equity itself. And as a result, many well-known UK companies went bankrupt. What's more, a number of highly indebted, private equity-controlled companies were rescued by taxpayers, leading to the feeling that this was yet another case of the powerful privatizing gains and socializing losses. To discuss these differing views are two influential leaders in the field. Vindi Banga worked at Unilever for 33 years, where he's global director and responsible for driving its sustainability agenda. He's now a senior partner at Clayton Dublier and Rice, one of the world's oldest and leading private equity firms. Ludo Falapu is professor of financial economics here at Said Business School. Ludo is the author of the bestseller, Private Equity Laid Bare, and he's been named one of the 40 most outstanding business school professors under 40 in the world. I'll now hand you over to Ludo. Welcome to today's Leadership in Extraordinary Times uh, event from Oxford University's Said Business School. Wherever in the world you are, thank you for joining us. I'm Ludovic Falipu, and I'm Professor of Financial Economics at Oxford Said Business School. Our guest today is Vindi Banga, who's a partner at a well-known private equity firm, Clayton, Dubillier and Rice. And with him, I'll be talking about the impact of private equity ownership on companies, uh, which is a hot topic. Um, with a focus on what happened during the COVID pandemic, which is a hotter topic. So, Vindi, thank you so much for joining us today. And maybe you should, we could think first about what did private equity firms did well during the COVID crisis, and in particular, focusing on what was unique in these actions. It's a pleasure to be with you and everybody else today. Ludo, I... I think I would like to answer this really from the perspective of my own experience as an operating partner in my firm. It's hard to speak for the industry. I must say nobody could have anticipated the kind of challenges we have all collectively seen in the business world in the last 12 months. I have to say that um, all credit to our leadership teams that most of our portfolio companies, and we have about 35, grew earnings in 2020 over the prior year, 2019, and more than half actually achieved their original annual budget. Now, how did they do this? How did this happen? I think there are a a bunch of reasons for that. I think the first and most important thing is that we entered the crisis with what I would describe as a good quality portfolio. Now, we only invest in businesses that are either number one or number two in their chosen area of market segment or uh, uh, opportunity. Uh, Secondly, we typically back strong leadership teams and wherever we feel the leadership is, is for whatever reason needs to be strengthened, then we try and do that very early in the investment phase itself. Now, what did these teams actually do through this COVID crisis? I think the first priority in the first few weeks was to ensure safety and liquidity. Safety for all our employees and customers and consumers, this was paramount. How do you run your factories safely? You had to think very hard about those sorts of things. How do you organize shifts? How do you make sure your workers are safe? 
in terms of retail businesses, wherever they were open, how do you keep your customers as safe as possible? So safety was a very important aspect. But uh, Vindi, if like any any business did that too, right? So what was unique? Was there something unique to private equity in the ability to 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 keep people safe or? No, I don't think so. I, I think every responsible business probably did that. Okay. Liquidity was another aspect that we looked at very early on. We had to make sure we have enough cash to actually see through the crisis. So we looked away at all our companies and said, look, can we look through the next 12 to 24 months? Can we make sure we pay the rent, we pay the salaries, etc.? In some cases, we had to mothball some parts of companies stop some companies and all of that so we did that sorry on, on this one so again i'm trying to see what is unique to private equity so would you say that in a private equity setting usually people are more proactive in terms of planning uh, they are more used to look at cash management than other companies maybe because they are used to operate under high leverage and so the cash management is kind of a, a well-oiled function which may not be the case in other companies or or was it just you know, again, not just normal, like all the businesses looked at whether they could pay rent, right? I think with private equity, I would say one thing that, you know, there's a lot of focus on cash. I mean, that is absolutely critical. Every time we make an investment, we are very, very thoughtful about our cash flow, our cash uh, analysis and so on. There's a very good amount of focus on, on cash, which perhaps exists in the best of public companies, but certainly not in all the public companies that I'm aware of. So the second thing I'd say is within a few months, couple of months, all the operating skills come into play in private equity. And we move very quickly to take cost reduction. Now, some of this cost reduction uh, is stuff that uh, was temporary. Some of it is more structural and actually will stay right through the crisis and is giving us much higher operating leverage today. I think we move very quickly to adopt new technologies to create efficiencies, either in the supply chain or in terms of customer acquisition, all of that. At the same time, we were very focused on growth. How are we going to restart our businesses where we close them? How quickly can you get back into gear? How can you innovate to meet the needs of, uh, let's say, uh, uh, COVID? For example, we had a pizza business, which very quickly pivoted into curbside activities. If you can't open your store and you can't have people come in, how can you serve them at the curb? Speed, I think, is really important. And that is one factor which probably distinguishes uh, most private equity firms. And certainly in our firm, I find, felt that our people moved with extraordinary speed. And what, why do you think it is that other businesses do not have this kind of sense of urgency or speed of execution and and because whenever like 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 as you speak now it, it sounds to me just like as normal management like proper management what management should be and so i'm perhaps more puzzled by the fact that the other people don't do that right or non-private equity do, don't do that i think ludo one of the things that i've seen is that in private equity when you make an investment you have a defined period of about five or six years in which you have to deliver a significant step change in value creation. So you're very focused on time. There is a lot of focus on speed of action and time. You can't lose any time because if you lose it, you've lost a big chunk out of that five, six years. So I think certainly speed, I would say private equity firms tend to move with greater speed. A second yeah. factor that facilitates that is that either you have one shareholder or a handful of shareholders. And therefore, when you want to take swift change action, you can usually align very quickly around the course of action and then focus on implementing. That's right. One other thing I'd say that we did at that time is we began to focus quickly on acquisition opportunities. Now, we had strong balance sheets for most of our companies. We have capital. And at a time like this, it's really important to double down and see how you can emerge from the crisis much stronger. And therefore, yeah. we made several follow-on investments last year itself. I was going to bring this up because another advantage uh, that people usually think is unique to private equity is the access to the capital market, access to cash, right? So when there is a crisis, like it was in 2008, it 
private equity has usually usually have a lot of lines of credits put on, on business that they can draw upon uh, in case there is a problem. And here there was a problem. Um, and they have their own funds they can draw from their limited partners pretty quickly. And so they can easily acquire some of the businesses and, and the like. So would you say that there were some opportunistic acquisitions during the crisis when like you gave the example of your pizza shop, you could have acquired quite a few pizzerias during the crisis because a number of them were, were struggling yeah. hard. But I, I, I didn't see that many strategic or opportunistic acquisitions during the crisis of competitors by practically owned businesses. But ha have you seen some? Well, actually, I, I'll tell you that uh, and I'll dimensionalize it this way. Prior to the crisis, we were investing about $2 billion a year on average out of a $10 billion fund. In the last year, we have 12 months from now, since March 20, we have invested $5.5 billion. Okay. So you have and accelerated your drawdowns pretty quickly. Really accelerated. And that's because when there is dislocation of the scale that there was in, in the whole environment, business environment, uh, businesses you know, come under challenge. And our job is we can actually provide solution capital. As you were saying, people need capital. We can provide solution capital, but we do more than that because we bring with that solution capital operating capability and operating experience. So I'll give you three different types of examples uh, of new investments that we made in the last 12 months. The first was a set of firms needing liquidity, right? So we own a leading furniture retailer in France called Butte. It's, I know them well, I know them very well. I bought stuff there. Oh really? Well, good, I'm glad with that. Now, there is another furniture retailer in France, Conforama, which is part yeah. of the Steinhoff Group. And they I were in trouble. why they were not merged together, these two guys, but yeah. But there we are. So we stepped in. This business was going into administration. And we've actually acquired Conforama. We know the industry well. We see an opportunity not just to place our capital, but actually an opportunity to improve its operating margin, in particular through improving the supply chain. So that's one example. If I give you another example, there was a food service business in Florida, which was facing a liquidity challenge during the first lockdown. Right? They had high leverage. Uh, they had liquidity issues. We understand the food service industry very well. We've invested in it for years. So we knew the industry is going to come back. And therefore, we were able to invest with a convertible preferred security. And sure enough, the business is doing very well right now. So solving the liquidity question for companies was one source of opportunity. Another source was companies looking for transformational growth and looking for either capital or partners to help them. And here again, you know, I can give you a couple of examples. We invested in a pharmaceutical services platform called Huntsworth. This is a company that helps commercialize new drugs. And we've been able to inject capital, but actually add growth funds and help it to grow faster. Radio Systems is another business in the pet protection, pet care product business in the US. And again, you know, they were doing very well. But what we've been able to do is to give them fresh capital and fresh growth avenues. So I think that's the second area, which is companies looking for transformational growth. The third source of investment opportunity in the last 12 months has been carve-outs. A lot of companies, global businesses, have had to reprioritize their portfolios and divest their non-core operations. In the UK, private equity firms have completed more than 10 billion of carve-out transactions last year. And that is up from less than a billion in the previous year. So you can see that a lot of companies are trying to churn their portfolios. One example, for instance, in the UK that we acquired was a you know, business called Wolseley, which is a, a plumbing and heating distribution business, which was carved out of Ferguson. So there were these three sources of opportunity for us to deploy additional capital, needs of liquidity, a, 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 a looking out for transformational growth and carve outs. Um, we have two uh, other questions, uh, one from Ned uh, in Oxford, which is a bit difficult. I think we, the answer will be we don't know. But the question was, do we have any proof yet that private equity-owned companies have performed better than others 
during this, this COVID crisis. I think in terms of academic research, we barely got some answers about how they did during the 2008 crisis. So I think you will have to wait another 10 years to have an answer to your question, Ned. Uh, but maybe, Vindi, do you, do you have something about this? You have observed only your portfolio, but... Well, I have observed our portfolio, and as I said uh, right at the beginning, that our portfolio has performed remarkably well through this crisis uh, in a very agile manner. Uh, but I'm aware that there are several studies that have actually shown that at times of distress, private equity firms tend to do better than public market firms. And, and I think there is good reason for it, as we were discussing, um, at times of stress like this, you need agility. Agility is very important, speed of action. And I do believe that private equity firms have an inherent advantage in terms of being able to move very, very fast. And that's because uh, they either have only a single or a very small group of shareholders. Typically, those shareholders tend to be very close to the company. They're very engaged with the company. They tend to know the, the strategy of the business and the operations of the business very well. And therefore, they're able to quickly align with management and, and take swifter action. Yeah. So we, we're talking in a sec about the, 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 the management. Just to, to bring up the academic study that looked at 2008 crisis, um, the most evidence we have is by George Lerner and his co-authors. And they found that Indeed, it looks like they failed better, the private equity companies, especially in 2008, 2010, mainly because of the access to capital of private equity that they can then uh, could do some strategic acquisitions uh, uh, and the like. Uh, I saw as well that uh, I always try to avoid a, a jargon or to specify it. So somebody uh, in LinkedIn is asking us to specify what a carve out is. It simply means that when you have a company that has different divisions, they are setting one division uh, away to private equity. So they are carving out one of their divisions. So it's as if uh, Oxford University was carving out the business school and we will become independent and, and, and fly and with our own wings. Ludo, I might just add one thing. I think um, uh, I, I haven't seen the study you mentioned, but I, I, I can understand that. I do believe also that I've seen another study, and this was McKinsey, uh, which basically shows that in recession era, you know, those firms that have deep operating skills tend to do better. Uh, and again, one would understand why that would be the case. Yeah. There, there was another question from uh, Tsovinar, which brings me to the management that you just mentioned. She's asking about, you know, to talk about the change in management in practically on firms. So again, there are some studies there showing that it's not, it's not that often that they change management, but they change it quite often. And it's usually at the beginning. It's not so much during the life. It, it's, it's pretty rare that they fire management. It's like they, they acquire a company and I think it's one time in three, then they just change the management at inception and usually stick to the management team. Any uh, uh, experience you want to share on, on changing the management and, and the role of management? Sure. Well, look, I think actually uh, that, that's probably the most important decision that you have to make, the team that you have on the playing field. Uh, and that's a very important part of our diligence uh, exercise. And as I said right in the beginning, we prefer to back really strong management teams. Now, uh, where that is not the case then it's really important to try and put in the team as quickly as possible. Because as we said, we have a defined hold period of five or six years. And you don't want to lose time with a team that you're not particularly confident of. So that's a very important priority. I think one of the things that I would uh, probably here differentiate again with public companies, in public companies, you tend to uh, appoint the leader. And then the leader tends to appoint everybody else. I think in the private equity business, you need to get the whole football team on the playing field on day zero. Yeah. The day you yeah, that's a big difference. I've noticed that. A yeah. big difference. And therefore, we would actually support our leadership in quickly filling the gaps. You know, our operating partners have wide networks in different industries. And we want to make sure that the whole field is covered with top talent as quickly as possible. Now, you asked about change of management during the investment phase as well, apart from the start. Um, uh, that does happen. And there are some cases where we need to do that. You know, what tends to be is sometimes uh, the job to be done or the, the focus changes during the period of an investment. Let me give you an example. There may be some people who are extraordinarily good managers in the first phase when the company is private. 
But when you're preparing a company, for instance, to exit into public markets, you need a certain repertoire of skills and you may need a different manager or leader at that point in time. And if that is the case, then we would make the change. Yeah, actually, something that has uh, always puzzled me um, is is this narrative, and, and and you use these words, and and when I read prospectuses from private equity, they they often say that we invest only in the number one, number two in the sector, in the best management teams, and so on. Actually, my prior would be like that. The opposite would be better because if you invest only in the, like the number one, number two in the best management team, there is not much value you can add. There is not much you can bring because these companies are doing fine, so you would pay you know a pretty high price for them. There is not much margin to improve things. You, I, I would have expected that if you have special skills, you you buy the laggers and then you make them winners. Uh, but I never hear the narrative. Well, I tell you one thing. If you buy companies that are typically doing very well, it's unlikely that you can buy them at an affordable price. And therefore, your ingoing valuation would be very, very high. And I think that uh, when we invest, we actually try to invest in businesses which we can bring something to as operators. In fact, more than two thirds of our investments have been done in partnership, either with a seller or a buyer. And that's because they realize that actually we bring something unique to that particular business at that point in time. I mean, throughout our last couple of funds, our investment ingoing valuations have been a turn less than the industry for that reason. Yeah. Um, we are getting uh, a question on, 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 on a slightly different topic. There are two questions of, of that type. I'm going to take the one from Marina in, in uh, Singapore, Marine Wang. Uh, she's asking basically where to invest. So that's, that's a question for you. I would have no clue. Uh, it, you know, any particular vertical markets uh, that would be interesting targets post the pandemic? Uh, and also, will COVID change the value creation methodology? So that's a really good question. I would start by saying where not to invest. I think it's very simple. You should not try to invest in an area that you don't understand or don't know. And that is why our firm is organized in verticals. We focus on certain vertical areas. We focus on consumer and retail. We focus on certain aspects of industrials. We focus on the healthcare sector. We focus on certain aspects of business services and we focus on certain aspects of technology services. And when we see investments outside that space, we are very, very cautious. So I think it's really important not to extend yourself beyond your own understanding and your own knowledge base. Now, different PE firms have different focus areas. Some people would feel very comfortable investing in a particular category where others would not. So Pick your spot. I think pick what you know. And from our point of view, it's where we have operating partners and operating advisors and teams that really understand that domain. Okay. We have a question from Cambodia uh, asking about what was the impact on your fundraising efforts and exit strategy? So actually, it's quite interesting you asked that question. Uh, last year, in the midst of this entire COVID crisis, as I said, we stepped up our investment rate and deployed uh, $5.5 billion, which is more than double what we do normally prior to that. But in the same year, we also raised our 11th fund, which was $16 billion. And that fund, again, we raised through you know, these sorts of Zoom meetings and so on and so forth. So we were yeah. able to raise funds. This was suddenly an innovation. People didn't think they, need, they could raise funds via Zoom, right? Uh, what I hear on the ground, however, is that it's easier for firms like yours to have fundraised on Zoom because people already know you, so they don't need to like come and inspect you in a sense, right? Or, or, or do too much. Like for first-time funds, it's, it's a nightmare to raise via, via Zoom. So... Do you think it's, it's there to change? Because, because it was a huge tax on people like, like you to, instead of you know, spending time helping companies, you flying around the world to meet investors was pretty taxing, right? You know, it's part of the job. I think uh, in, in private equity, you have to invest, you have to deliver a return. And by the way, it's only when you deliver a successful return that you can raise your next fund. So it's part of the cycle. Uh, and we are used to doing that. All of us, of course, we have a specialist investor relations team and group that does that. Uh, but all of us chip in and help. 
uh, where we can and are deployed to to meet our investors, to explain our investing philosophy, to tell them about what we are doing and hopefully raise more money. So we're all part of that effort. Can this work through Zoom? Look, I think that's a much broader question. Uh, it's not just about raising funds. I think that what we've learned through this last 12-month period is that we can do a lot more on this kind of technology than we had ever imagined. Just think about what we're doing right now. Typically, this would have been in a classroom, only people limited there. And today, we're able to talk sitting in our home offices to people all over the world. And actually, most of the questions, I was going to bring this up because most of the questions are coming from Asia. <laughs> so, now, um, this is, yeah, it's hugely interesting. Now, does that mean that uh, we can continue to work like this only? And of course, the answer to that is no, because, you know, you do lose certain things. For example... I think you lose in terms of building a long-standing culture and meeting new people and so on. There are some things that only actually happen when you when you meet in person. You know, today you chair a board meeting like this on Zoom, and that's fine. It works very well. We're all used to now doing it. But then you click it off and it's gone. And in a normal board meeting, you would actually sit around outside and you'd probably have some fresh thoughts. And, and those conversations are as important as what happens in the board meeting. So I think that the world will come back to some happy mean in between. You know, I, I think that we'll have to come back. We won't go back to what we used to do earlier in terms of the level of travel, but we'll find a new mean. Yeah. So we have questions like, so asking about whether you invest in Nigeria, there is a question from, by Subhadra from Chennai. Um, on how private equity performed in emerging markets versus developed markets. Does your firm have experience with that? Do you invest also in emerging markets, uh, especially like Africa or, or Asia? No, our, our firm is principally focused, our global dollar fund is uh, focused on investments which are centered either in the US or in Europe. Now, bear in mind that those are global companies, so they may have operations all over the world, including Asia and Africa. But we don't invest directly through CDNR in either of those geographies. We do have a partnership with a fund in India called Kedara, uh, which invests in Indian companies. And that has also done extremely well. Uh, it's it's in just raising its third fund. We've been a partner of theirs for about eight years. Uh, and I think uh, that too has weathered the COVID crisis extremely well. Okay. And there is Ari who's asking, Given how crazy the valuations are on the stock markets, why aren't you just basically selling everything in an IPO and, and running away? Well, you know, uh, the point is this. Our, our job is not to sell and run away. Our job is to actually create sustainable value creation. Uh, and I think when we take on an investment, that takes time. You know, we have a certain thesis and we need time to develop and deploy that thesis, whether it be in terms of growth or in terms of cost reduction or whatever. So now, is it a good time to exit certain investments? Yes, of course. And I'm sure everybody and we will also try and take advantage uh, of the public markets to do so. But I think, you know, one has to be very clear that you have created enough value inside the company to access the public markets. Public markets are intelligent investors. So there, there is a question from, from Germany by Alexander. He says, in times of, of crisis, you need extreme speed of action. And then he, he says, isn't it your experience that in founders, startup companies, you would go faster than, than if you have an established PE firm uh, finance company with respect to, to, to the speed and agility? I think the two uh, cases are very different. You know, uh, yes, of course, founders and startup uh, can be very quick, uh, but they also benefit from being supported by the appropriate venture capital firms because the venture capital firms have the benefit of, of many, many startups, of many having seen many founders, of seeing many situations. So those firms benefit from those type of partnerships or support from venture capital firms. And, and yes, they are agile. Of course, they have to be. In fact, most founders and startups, as you all know, pivot through maybe two or three times before they discover you know, a successful direction. You're listening to Leadership in Extraordinary Times. 
In conversation are Vindi Banga of Clayton Dupelier and Rice and Ludovic Falapu, Professor of Financial Economics here at Said Business School. So far, Ludo and Vindi have discussed the positive contributions that PE has made to companies in the wake of the pandemic. But we're going to move on now to its more controversial aspects. The PE industry has been under public scrutiny for years, but since the outbreak of COVID-19, it's been in the headlines more than ever for all the wrong reasons. The private equity business model hinges on debt, and the point of tension often focuses on leverage. Ludo Falapu picks up this thought. Somehow, there is leverage that is added to a lot of debt that is added to portfolio companies. And if things are going well and you do increase the value of companies, leverage means you will earn a lot more money, which I guess people can live with and they they are fine with that. But the flip side of this would be if things don't go well, given the high level of debt, you don't have that much margin for error. And then any error would then just like destroy a company. And in principle, that shouldn't be a big deal. If if it's purely financial distress, then the private equity person should just lose the control of the company. Someone else is picking it up. And if the company is economically viable, they just carry on. But in practice, we see it's not what's happening. And the companies may be forced to shut down. Uh, There is like tons of examples like Toys R Us, et cetera, where it looks like the the company was maybe uh, viable uh, economically, but it is the leverage put on by private equity firms that killed it. And then that means lots of people that already don't earn much money, that whose situation is financially fragile, that then become in tremendous distress and are kind of a collateral victim of private equity. And I think this is where the controversy comes from, is that people don't deny anything of what we've just said in the first half, but they have an issue with why is it you take this leverage bet on this and at the cost of the society picking up the pieces if it doesn't go go well and you picking up the reward if it is going well. Look, I think every company, whether public or private, uses leverage. Uh, It's a question of judgment as to what is the level of leverage that an individual asset can support. And that's a judgment that public companies make as private companies make. Every businessman makes that judgment, even a founder. So I think the first point is to be very thoughtful about the amount of leverage you place on an investment. And that Depends a little bit on the business, the market, the volatility in that industry, the competitive dynamics, and the opportunity for growth. So all of those need to be taken into account. Now, coming to the question of what happens when companies run into difficulty. Look, business will, you know, business uh, uh, does run into difficulty for sure. Walking away from a company, uh, in my book, it's not an option. It's certainly not an option for CDNR. Why? Well, first of all, you lose your investment. But that's one issue. The bigger issue is your reputation. And that's what Ludo is talking about. You know, our reputation is the currency with which we are able to source new deals. And that's particularly because more than two thirds of our deals are in partnership with the buyer or the seller. And therefore, actually, where we have business challenges. What what do you mean it's in partnership with with a seller? How, How does that work? So let's say um, there is a company that wants to divest an asset. They could either divest that asset to us in one go. Typically, those tend to be non-core assets, right? And when they're non-core assets, they have often been starved of capital, starved of operating talent, starved of growth and initiatives. So if if a a company sells a non-core asset like that, let's say it realizes a value of 100. On the other hand, If they decide to keep a share of that and partner with us and they hand over the operational responsibility to us and exit in a second stage, then typically they would make two or three times their money. That's been our experience. But why why do you give them that, right? Because you're doing all the work and you're just giving them, you know, this. Is it because then you can buy it for a lower price? And and, and, and I have never heard of that, actually. So and I would also expect you to be one of the only one to do it. I I don't think it's that common. Well, actually, our history is very much in this. In fact, one of the first deals we did like this way back, I'm now probably talking 30 years ago, 35 years ago, was when we bought uh, Lexmark out of IBM. And at the time, the typewriters and the mainframe computers used to be sold by the same sales force. And that didn't make sense. So we actually stepped in and helped IBM carve out 
the typewriter division and we had to stand up the whole division with a separate sales force, etc. And IBM kept a stake in Lexmark. That's one example of a partnership deal. And, and in our history, we probably got more, as I said, more than two thirds. Why do we do it? Actually, there's a very good reason. When you do a partnership deal, you firstly are hopefully able to invest at a more attractive price. Yeah. Because it's not being sold in an auction. And the seller is thinking much more about, hey, I might be able to get 10% more today in an auction, but I might be able to get two or three times my money if I keep 40%, transfer the ownership to this private equity firm, which will be focused on that asset, help it grow, help it revive, and then we exit together. So yeah. that's one reason. The second reason is that when you're in carve-outs, there's a lot of activity in the carve-out. You know, you have to create a new sales force. You might have to change supply chain arrangements, etc. And when you do that, if you're in partnership, you can do it in a more coordinated way. Otherwise, the risk of transition could be quite high. Yeah, no, I, I had uh, ne never heard of, 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 of that approach, actually. Would you would you say you, and it's making sense, that you can then get a lower price and you avoid an auction, I think, especially nowadays where everything goes for an auction. It is probably a very good idea. But you seem to be the only firm to do that, right? Well, uh, I wouldn't say we're the only firm. But what I would say is that the vast majority of our transactions come that way. And, yeah. and that's a, I, I believe it's really important. And that plays back to what we were saying earlier. That is why it is so important that we are very thoughtful about our reputation. Our objective when we invest is to create sustainable value. And we must ensure that we do that with our partners in particular. Still on this topic, there was Louis from London who was asking, I, I, I thought about asking that earlier, actually. How does the interaction between the operating partners and the management team works? In a sense, it feels like a bit duplicating, right? So there is a management team that's supposed to manage and then you have your own operating partners. How, how then does that work? Well, Louis, that's a really good question. And I often get asked that. It's actually quite straightforward. Look, our job is not to manage the company. There's a management to do that, right? Our job is to support the management, but first of all, to make sure we have the best management and then support them to really get on with the job. And we can help them because we have seen many situations like this before. We have looked at different industries. We have looked at different geographies. So we can actually uh, help them see what they may or may not be able to see on their own. Think about an analogy of a coach and a captain in a, a sport field. That's it. The coach doesn't play the game. He's not on the field, but he's very much there to think strategy, to be a brainstorming partner with the team and to help them become a better team. That's our job. I see. I like that analogy. We have today, uh, I would say, probably about 40 operating partners or operating advisors in the firm. And most of them, in fact, all of them, not most, all of them have had very successful careers in, in whatever they did earlier. They're at a stage where they actively choose this role to be a coach. They actually don't wish to be a CEO anymore. They've been yeah. there, done that, got the T-shirt. And now um, it's about helping and supporting people, energizing them, helping them achieve. The main source of controversy about operating partners were, were about um, the, 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 the cost and who bears it, right? So there is always this question on should the portfolio company pay for the operating partners, in which case it is effectively the LPs paying for this on top of the management fees they pay to the funds, or should it be the firm paying the operating partners? It does generate a conflict of interest, right? In our firm, the operating partners are part of the firm CDNR, just like the financial partners. So you, you, you're paying the salary entirely? Absolutely. Well, we don't draw a salary. We're, you know, we are partners of the firm. That's it. You, if, the, if the firm is successful, you'll be successful. But therefore, we are very much part of the firm. Okay. So the portfolio companies do not pick up the tabs? No. Okay. No. So, so then no. you, you, you close that, that conflicts of interest. But, but you agree that it's not the case at all the other firms, right? So. I actually don't know how the other firms particularly work, but I know that's the model in our firm, which is that we don't uh, create a burden on the portfolio companies. Okay. So the controversies uh, that, that we've seen, especially during the COVID crisis, that, that 
So these companies that were owned by private equity had a lot of leverage. A lot of them were retailers that everybody knew, etc. So they were brands people know and sometimes loved. And then comes the COVID, and then they are you know running out of of money pretty quickly. And then they turn to the government and say, "Well, can you help us out?" And then there was this controversy, which is, well, if you hadn't put so much debt on them to begin with, you wouldn't need so much bailout from the government. So is it again, you know, a famous sentence, capitalism for the rich, communism for the poor. Like once you're in trouble, then it's the taxpayer who has to bail you out. Any thoughts on that? Well, I think that the governments all over the world have been very thoughtful about how to help business through this crisis. And I'm glad that they have actually not followed any criteria on what is the source of ownership rather they have focused on the sustainability of business and when you see for example uh, many of them have tried to protect employment through either the furlough kind of scheme that was used in the uk or, or other such employment support schemes all over the world and those schemes comes with certain formulas certain norms and i believe every every firm whether you know it's owned by private equity or by venture capital or by public markets uh, should actually access that but play by the norms of that scheme and that's what's good yeah so you say it's it's good to have this this social backup for any businesses but uh, but i i i guess on the upside when companies are doing well then they hopefully pay taxes so that they can contribute to this social safety net right more than that i think what happens is you know companies that do well and this might be taking us into the area of esg uh, but companies that do well do well for a whole set of reasons first of all their customers are happy and their customers are doing well their employees have to be happy and satisfied and engaged and are therefore doing well so companies that do well when you create sustainable value your whole ecosystem does well of course you pay taxes but your whole ecosystem does well and when that happens that's good for society it's good for everybody yeah okay so again do you think it makes a difference again in theory when when you have you know too much debt and you cannot pay that debt in principle the equity holder is just losing its stake and then we move on to the debt holder and then employment should be unaffected so there is no need to to help the equity holder uh, in case of a downturn it happened here and the argument often on the table was well the debt holder is not capable of running a company but then if it is the case then it looks like practically can basically never lose because you know if there is a downturn they say look you need to save employees so bail me out because nobody else can run this company and if things are going well then they win so um i think typically you know the equity holder has the responsibility of actually finding a pathway through crisis and that's what i was saying earlier when crises happen the responsibility is to double down and find a solution now in finding a solution it is possible that you might want to involve other stakeholders beyond yourself it could be the debt holders it could be yourself by putting in more equity it could be a constellation of these actions that you create and you try to lead a solution out of that crisis that i believe is responsible management okay uh we're getting some questions on taxes so um anulika from london is is saying well what happens if companies are not paying taxes right so so private equity uh, has not been the only one to be creative to lower the tax bill um others have been as well but private equity certainly is pretty creative when it comes to uh, um lowering the tax bill of companies and ari is also asking whether you could comment on the 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 tax uh potential tax change uh treatment of carried interest uh and then maybe also the the Biden changes and all the countries trying to you know make company pay taxes so right now it looks like a lot of companies have been avoiding the tax look i i think that again it doesn't matter whether you're in private ownership or public market ownership you have to pay the taxes according to the law of the land you know every every country has its tax laws then there are international tax laws and you have to operate under that regime and and that's just fair it doesn't matter what kind of ownership you have having said that what do i think about what will happen i honestly don't know i don't know uh, you know what will happen to uh, the taxation of carried interest or not my view is look whatever the taxes are they have to be paid today we pay all kinds of taxes you know you have to do business under that environment 
But we are pretty much in a world where if you're wealthy enough, you basically decide whether you want to pay taxes or not. If you're a big company, you basically decide whether you want to pay taxes or not, because you can have an aggressive tax avoidance strategy like a Starbucks and, and companies like that and effectively not paying any taxes. It's almost a choice of companies to decide whether they're going to pay taxes or not. We see big, large companies that say, I decided not to pay taxes by using you know, the laws and I'm, I'm within the laws and, I, and then it, it turns out I don't pay taxes. And we see some big companies saying, I could avoid taxes, but because I don't want that vis-a-vis -vis my stakeholders and my responsibility vis-a-vis -vis society, I decided to go ahead and pay taxes at a higher rate than I could. Well, look, I, I think this again takes us back into the area of ESG. Uh, and I think if you are interested in being a sustainable business, you have to follow not just the letter of the law, but the spirit of the law. And I think that's what responsible companies do. Do you see taxes being discussed much in ESG? To, to me so far, ESG often discusses like the fraction of women you have in a company. You know, what do you do vis-a-vis -vis the, maybe the environment and the carbon footprint at best? That's pretty much it. Or that's most of the topics. I, I rarely see much discussion in ESG of companies saying, we've decided to pay more taxes than we could have had because we think it's our responsibility to pay taxes. I think that in the area of G under governance, certainly uh, appropriate taxation responsibility is an important aspect of companies. And they must have a policy as to how they actually operate in different tax regimes. You are right in pointing out that international companies in particular have to think very carefully about what is a responsible tax activity. Because you, you do have your shareholders, right? So if you decide to pay on more taxes, your shareholders are getting less. So uh, Anulika was uh, uh, asking again in her question saying, well, she was she was stating in her, in her, in her question, I think rightfully, that uh, P-backed portfolio companies seem to engage significantly more uh, in non-conforming tax planning and have lower marginal tax rates than other private firms. So, well, uh, I, I don't know. I can't, as I said, I can't speak for the industry. I can just talk about our firm. And I would tell you that we are, of course, very thoughtful, but extremely responsible about how we approach the subject of taxation for all our companies. Okay. And so, and so if there is a change on, on carried interest tax, you, you don't think it will lead some practically professionals to move uh, houses to other places? I mean, you, you can't change your business model or your life just because of taxes. You know, how do you do that? You can't do that. But I think at a different level, you know, one has to realize that um, as a company, you don't only have a shareholder. You have multiple stakeholders. The best companies in history have been companies that have always actually taken care of all their stakeholders, their customers, their employees, their supply chain, their extended supply chain, the regulators, everybody. Those are the companies that actually command the highest multiples in any industry they operate in. Now, there is a reason for that. And that is why ESG is good for business. You know, ESG is not something that you have to do. ESG is something that you must do. And you must do it because it's good for business. Your employees want it. Your consumers want it. Your customers want it. Your governments want it. I mean, it's non-negotiable in my view. Yeah. yeah. I'm skeptical about the win-win uh, doctrine, So, but that would be for another uh, uh, a podcast. I'm, I'm, happy. I'm, I'm happy, happy if people are, are more responsible. I'm, I'm, I'm not quite sure it's as simple as saying I'm... If I am responsible, then I will do well. But uh, I think people need to go beyond that and, and being much more proactive in their responsibilities. So, you know, right now there is some emergencies in India elsewhere. Uh, there we see, you know, the, the, the landscape in the in the UK on retail is is absolutely terrifying. The tax issue is is a big deal. Uh, we don't collect as much taxes as as we used to on businesses. So there is quite a, a number of things that are red hot on on that space. I agree with you. Every business person, doesn't matter which business you're in, which country you're in, you must make sure that your business engages with the society around it in a very responsible way and helps when there's a problem. Similarly, you as an individual, if you're fortunate today to have more than many others, then it's up to us to actually see how we can help. And we can help in kind, we can help in money, we can help personally. 
I think it's really important for business to be engaged with society. And certainly, if, you, if I again, if I come back to all the firms that I've been associated with, if I think back to my corporate career, Unilever was deeply in, involved with society. You know, it was the first employer to employ women in the UK. The first. And that was because the women were fundamentally more productive on the shop floor. And therein lies the, the kernel of, let's say, the responsibility doctrine in Unilever. In CDNR, we have the same philosophy. As a firm, we do what we can as a private equity firm. And through our portfolio companies, we try to be as responsible as we can. So uh, there are two things that are very dear to, to the school is, is climate and justice, social and racial. Is there anything that you have observed over the last 12 months when these issues have been coming even more center place than, than they used to be? Any concrete actions that were taken at, at your firm or around you on, on these issues? You know, we, we have not adopted ESG today. We've been actually on this journey for a very long period of time. As a firm, we, of course, are very focused on inclusion, diversity. We are trying to get in people from different backgrounds. Uh, and try to actually assimilate them in the firm. But we can do much more through our portfolio companies. Today, our portfolio companies employ 225,000 people and have much greater impact. So we are actually focused on how our portfolio companies can have a very responsible ESG focus. What do we do? So when we actually diligence the firms that we're going to invest in, we look at them through the ESG lens. And as soon as we've invested, within the first 100 days, we put together a very relevant ESG program for that company. As you might imagine, every company could have different focuses. Two items are always common. I would say carbon and diversity. These are common to all companies. But on other aspects, different companies choose other areas that might be relevant. And then we actually help them through the period of, of their investment with us to improve on the ESG plan. We think that ESG initiatives are just like growth or cost. You know, it's it adds value. And uh, I, I come back to what I said earlier, at the end of our ownership period, if we can increase the ESG embedded value in the company that we have invested in, I think we will command a better multiple on our exit. Okay, well, sadly, we, we're out of time. If you're interested in private equity, I have my own podcast series, which is called Private Equity Laid Bare. It's been a fantastic discussion. So thank you so much, Vindi. It was, it was really, really good. Thank you so much. Thank you, Ludo. It's been a pleasure. My thanks to Professor Ludovic Falapu and Vindi Banga. My name is Peter Tefano, and you've been listening to Leadership in Extraordinary Times a podcast from Oxford University's Said Business School. If you enjoyed this episode, help others find out about the series by leaving us a rating and a review, and subscribe to future episodes wherever you get your podcasts. If you'd like more information about this episode and the Leadership in Extraordinary Time series, please visit OxfordAnswers.org. Until next time, thanks for listening.